Goat. Welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will be studying the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is Saturday, January 6, 2024. My name is Tanya G, and I'm a compulsive overeater, grateful to live <laughs> in recovery. I will be your host for today's um, study. Our co-hosts are Nancy J, Maria F., um, Audrey, Danny, and I'm sure some others I don't want to skip. But if you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private messaging them in the chat function. The chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the questions and answer session. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G., will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the questions and answer session, which follows, will not be recorded. We will ask if you can please make sure you keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for, um, for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to our seventh tradition. This money goes towards the cost of our Zoom account the cost of uploading our recordings, and we will also send contributions to our inner group in WSO. We will post a link in the previous week's recording. These are available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat box. Now I will be turning um, the meeting over to our Harlan G. Go right Thank ahead. Thank you very much, Tanya. And I just uh, want to say how honored I am to be here and how glad I am to be doing this. Um, I hope that it is as absolutely stunning where you are as it is here. It's a little on the cool side here in Scottsdale. It's only going to get up today to about 60, which is a little on the cool side. But I'm hoping that wherever you are, whether you're listening on a podcast or whether you are listening to me live right now, that it is absolutely gorgeous where you are as well. For the better part of my life, I have been a member of Overeaters Anonymous. I came in here when I was 24 years old. I was soon to turn 25 several months later, but I came in when I was 24 years old. It was the 2nd of February, 1979. It was a very cold Friday night, and it was in Skokie, Illinois, and it was at a place called the Orchard mental health center. See, God, God has a sense of humor too. There I was at the mental health center. They probably should have kept me there incarcerated or something. I'm not sure. But there I was at the Orchard Mental Health Center. And when I came in on that night back in 1979, I had a story. And all of you have a story. Now, what am I talking about? Am I talking about Goldilocks and the Three Bears or the story of your vacation to the Grand Canyon or your, uh, and, you know, uh, 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 the cat in the hat? No, I'm not talking about that at all. What I'm talking about here is I am talking about the story that you cooked up in your mind as to why you are here why you are a compulsive overeater. And, you know, I had a mentally ill mother who loved me to death, but she was very sick, mentally and sick physically. 
And when I was 22, she passed away. But I essentially lost my mom when I was just four or five years old. And my dad was a loving, wonderful man. He loved me. He thought that the the sun and the stars set on in my eyes. He loved me to death. But he was elderly. He was 54 when I was born. And he was 60 by the time I entered kindergarten, or 59, 60 by the time I entered kindergarten uh, in September of 1959. No, he was 59 years old on that date. And he was really not more like a father. He was more like an affectionate grandpa. He couldn't do the things with me that a lot of dads could do with their little boys. And I grew up in a small rented apartment and I lived in a neighborhood of homes. My mom really was not much of a housekeeper uh, and things just were not, the things at my house were not the way they were at other houses. And we were always seemingly one flat tire from the street. My dad was not a businessman. He was not a savvy business guy and he didn't do well. And we struggled my entire life. Is that why I'm a compulsive overeater? No. If I would have grown up as one of the Rockefellers, if I would have grown up with uh, uh, Mary Tyler Moore and Dick Van Dyke as uh, I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents, they sang and they danced in the living room and they were the perfect couple and they were beautiful and they were wonderful. I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents. I have to tell you this quick, funny story. You know, I've told that story a million times that I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents. And at the end of one of my talks at the uh, Vision Convention a number of years ago, not the one in Virginia Beach, but the one in Newark, so one of the few that we did in Newark, as I was leaving the stage, they were playing the theme from the Dick Van Dyke show. It was very, actually very funny. There was a, a disc jockey there and he was playing the theme from the Dick Van Dyke show. Anyway, if I would have had Rob and Laura Petrie for parents and I would have had Alan Brady for a uncle or whatever, I would have had... Um, uh, Whatever, you know, if my if my life was opulence and my parents were young and hip and with it, would I have been a compulsive overeater? You bet I would. You bet I would. And the reason that I would be a compulsive overeater is because I am a compulsive overeater. Now, I'm going to say that again because it's so simple that some of you are going to say, I don't understand what you're saying. What do you mean you're a compulsive overeater? Well, here's what I'm saying. I am a compulsive overeater because I am a compulsive overeater. There are people who are raised in opulence with parents like Rob and Laura Petrie who are compulsive overeaters, alcoholics, gamblers, drug addicts, sex addicts, love addicts. There are people from wealthy, powerful families that end up here. Whether you come from Yale or jail, whether you come from Park Avenue or a park bench, it doesn't matter how you got here. 
Now, why am I going through all this today? Because I want you to, in your mind, begin a process of divorcing yourself from that story. Because I'm going to let you in on a little secret. That story is not true. Something happened to me, and ostensibly to you, but something happened to me when I was very, very, very young. I was scared of the world that I was born into. I felt inadequate. I watched people walking by, driving by. I'm sort of paraphrasing a speech from uh, a movie called My Name is Bill. And Bill, the character Bill Wilson gives a speech that I don't remember word for word, but I'm paraphrasing it. He said, I watched the world go by and I saw people and they were laughing and they were walking by. And he said he felt that he never measured up to those people. And then one day somebody gave him a drink when he was overseas in Europe fighting in World War I. Somebody gave him a drink and when he drank that drink, he felt just like he thought other people felt. Something came over him and made everything okay. Now, on the next page of where we're going to start today, and we're going to start today on XXVII in the fourth edition, XXVII. And we're going to start with the doctor rights. We're going to start with that. When I was a little boy, I felt scared to death of other people. Scared to death. I thought that they had something on me. They were good looking and I was not. They came from houses. I came from an apartment. They had young parents. I had old parents. They had some instruction manual for life that I just did not seem to have. And then one day, somebody took an Almond Joy bar or a potato chip or a piece of pizza or whatever, a taco, whatever, and put it in my hand. And I ate that Almond Joy bar. And for about nine seconds, the world was a beautiful, groovy, wonderful, accepting place. And that would have been okay. Except I also have something called the physical allergy. I had the physical allergy. And when I was watching people going by, I could well, I couldn't control the amount I ate once I once I ate it. But I'm reminded of something from that movie. It says that people were at ease with each other as Bill Wilson watched them from the window. He says, people were at ease with one another. And I noticed that too. And I never could be at ease with people. I always felt I had to crack that joke. I had to somehow blurt out something funny or something whatever to be a part of that group. I couldn't just be a part of humanity 
by just being me. And one of the greatest gifts I've had in recovery is the ability to just be me. And Bill Wilson goes on to say in this speech that when, the, when he took that drink, he could dare to dream. I couldn't dream. Even as a child, I couldn't dream because I knew that eventually the food and the weight would cut me to ribbons, cut me down, and my dreams would be squashed. I couldn't, I never dared to dream. And so what I have today, although it's a bit late, I'm going to be 70 years old, is I have the ability to dream without a piece of pizza or an Almond Joy bar. Now, Bill Wilson goes into this speech with Lois there, and he says that when he was drinking, it made everything okay. And it wasn't enough for very long. And after a while, he couldn't look at himself in the mirror. He couldn't look at the world when he was drinking. And most of all, he couldn't look at Lois because this is a disease of self-loathing, self-hatred, loathing. Those are not even strong enough words. I don't know that my vocabulary includes words that are adequate to describe the feeling I had when I would look at myself in the mirror, how many lies I had told myself and how I believed the world when the world was telling me that this is 100% my fault. That if I was just better, stronger, smarter, had more willpower, was willing to exercise, was willing to push myself away from the table, that I would be okay. And that if I was thin, I'd be okay. And at the end of the speech, he says, after all these descriptions of what liquor did to him and what liquor did for him, he looks into the camera, supposedly he's looking at Lois, and he says, in spite of everything I've said, what I want now more than anything is another drink. He had stopped believing in God. He had stopped believing in himself. He had stopped believing in other people. And he says, it may be insane, but after all this, what I really wanted more than anything else is another drink. And after doctors had pronounced me dead by 30, dead by 40, dead by 50, all I wanted was another drink. That's insanity. That's insanity. I have a dear friend. I love him. He loves me. We've been friends for 60 years. One day after I was crying, because I was so fat and I couldn't stand it anymore and I didn't want to live and I knew it was going to be a long time before I would be ever thin or I had never been on a date with a girl in my life. I had never tasted life. I had never, I had never been happy. He caught me eating corn dogs. 
And I was so ashamed and so embarrassed and so hurt. See, I would never let you hurt me like I hurt me. I would never let anyone do to me what, what I did to me, never. But yet I was doing it to myself, I thought, and it made me hate me. And that insanity of that speech in My Name is Bill, where he at the end of the speech says, he says, in spite of all this, what I really want more than anything else is another drink. He had stopped believing in God. He had stopped believing in himself and others. He wanted another drink. That's me. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to examine the myth of that story that we've been telling ourselves since we got into here to recovery at least. But we're going to start the process of understanding what is the difference between the real and the phony. And then we're going to look at something very important. We're going to look at divorcing ourselves from the myth that anything that is of this earth, of this world, will help us. I once thought that if I had a really attractive girlfriend, that I wouldn't want to eat like that. And I don't want to eat like that. And I have a very attractive girlfriend, but I still have challenges in my life. I have challenges in my life every day. I once thought that if I had a house instead of an apartment, that my life would be perfect. And I've had a house. I've had a nice big house in North Scottsdale, about three miles north of here. It's a house that's beautiful. And when I lived there, I had two German shepherds and I had a Pomeranian and a kid and a wife. It didn't cure me. I made the kind of money briefly, not for a long period of time, briefly that I never thought I could make. I had money. I was buying new cars every other year, brand new cars every other year for cash. Didn't cure me. Didn't cure me. Didn't make one bit of difference. It didn't take one Dorito out of my mouth. Not one. So we're going to start divorcing ourselves from this story that something that is of this earth is going to help you or cure you. And we're going to start divorcing ourselves from the story of it was mom's fault. It was dad's fault. It was this one's fault. It was because I live next door to Mike or I live next door to Sally or Mary or, 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 or Jerome or whoever. And they used to give me cookies when I was a kid. No, it has nothing to do with that. One of my favorite titles of any book in the back of the big book of AA is because I'm an alcoholic. Why am I a compulsive overeater? Because I'm a compulsive overeater. There is no other answer. There's no other answer. It doesn't matter whether I'm tall or short or white or black 
or Jewish or Catholic or Protestant or Mormon or whatever I am, Buddhist or Muslim, whether I speak one language or another language makes no difference. The reason that I am a compulsive overeater is because I am a compulsive overeater. Let's go to page XXVII. And this is the second of the letters that Dr. Silkworth is going to write for this book. There's two. The first one begins on page XXV and ends at the top of XXVI. And then Bill writes a little bit. And now we're going to get into the second longer letter from Silkworth, Dr. Silkworth. And by the way, by the way, I never want to do anything from this chapter and not say this. So while I'm thinking about it, I'm going to say it. If you would do yourself a favor today, this is something I do every day. Pray for the soul of Dr. Silkworth, because I'm going to tell you something. Bill Wilson was a great man. No doubt about it. He did some very ungreat things. He did some very ungreat human things that most of us know about. He was a great man. And the service that Bill Wilson did for this world, the sun will never set on that service. But without Dr. Silkworth, there's no program and there's no book because none of it would make one bit of sense. It doesn't make any sense. How can you write a book about alcoholism and not know what alcoholism is? That it's not a matter of willpower, that it's not a matter of weak will or stupidity or anything like it's none of those things it's an illness of the mind and it is an illness of the body so without silkworth you got nothing you got nothing let's go to page x x v i i the doctor writes the subject this is the second of the two letters the subject presented in this book seems to me, Silkworth, to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. Notice he doesn't say to those afflicted with stupidity, weak will, lack of discipline, all these other things. I say this after many years experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. Again, he is identifying himself as the medical director of Towns Hospital in New York. And that's who he is. There was, or that's what he did. There was therefore a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. Now I'm gonna take this next paragraph and I'm gonna read it the way it's written and then I'm gonna read it again and I'm gonna change some of the words and in changing some of the words, I'm hoping that this will bring new meaning and an amplified understanding of this to you. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics. 
but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. <clears throat> what with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Now I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna read this paragraph again, and I'm gonna take the liberty of changing some of the words. Now, remember, before I do that, that Dr. Silkworth is a man of medicine, and as such, he's a man of science, okay? He's not a man of philosophy or, you know, anything like that. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of spiritual awakening or spiritual experience was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond medicine's conception. What with, our, what with medicine's ultra-modern standards, medicine's scientific approach to everything, medicine is perhaps, perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good, God, that lie outside our medical knowledge. So let's take a look at what he's saying there. He is saying that he cannot help you. He is a doctor. You go to him, say, doctor, I'm drinking too much. I'm losing my wife. I'm losing my son, my daughter. I'm losing my job. I'm my mother-in-law can't stand me. My father-in-law can't stand me. I'm losing my family, my job, my career. Everything is going to hell in a handbasket. He is telling you here he cannot help you. He knows what's wrong with you. And there's not a damn thing he can do about it. And he says here, medicine is, is not well equipped to apply the powers of God that lie outside our medical knowledge. You have an illness. I'm just assuming you have it. If you're here, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. I'm assuming you do, but if you have this disease, only a spiritual awakening will conquer it. There is nothing that is of this earth. I could give you my money. I'll sell my house. I'll give you the money. I'll sell my car. I'll give you the money. I'll empty out my bank accounts. I'll give you the money. It isn't going to cure you. If I was wealthy beyond imagination, it would not cure you. Putting me in a mansion, putting me in a fancy car is just like putting pearls before on swine, lipstick on a pig. Because underneath, I am a filthy, dirty, compulsive overeater, and I will eat yet again if I stop working these steps. And remember what Bill said? The insane part, let me bring it up here. Somebody was kind enough to send me a message. He says, he stopped believing in God, myself and others. He says, it may be insane, but after all this, what I really wanted more than anything else is another drink. You give me enough space from this program and everything I ever wanted will be 
at Kentucky Fried Chicken or the pizzeria or the convenience store or the supermarket. I'll be putting boxes of Captain Crunch into vats of Cool Whip before you know what hits you. I'll be smashing Oreo cookies and putting them in Cool Whip before you know what hits you. And before I know what hit me, every prediction of those doctors that I would die in the food, that I would die would come true because I can't live very much longer if I'm in the food. I have chronic AFib, chronic AFib, atrial fibrillation of the heart. I'm not as young as I used to be. I am just not. And I fell down last September. I fell down because I passed out. Because when you have AFib of the heart, Sometimes you get very dizzy and I got dizzy and I fell down. And you know what happened to me? I was hospitalized for six days and incapacitated for most of a month. If it wasn't for the aforementioned girlfriend, I don't know what I would have done. She came here from Chicago and she looked after me and she took care of my house. She took care of me. She couldn't, I mean, I don't know what I what I did to deserve her, but I'm grateful to God every day. I was flat on my keister. Let me tell you, I was on a walker. Then I went to a cane. I couldn't walk, you know, without a walker or a cane for about three to four weeks, not even in the house. I couldn't do it. I had a hematoma in my hip and um, it was bad news. That's how fragile life is. What do you think would happen if I packed on 175 pounds by Memorial Day? How much longer do you think I would live? Not too much longer. Let's continue. Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book, Bill Wilson, came under our care in this hospital. And while here, he acquired some ideas, which he put into practical application at once. Now let's take a look at this, at this paragraph. It's a short one. Bill Wilson was hospitalized three times that we know of. Actually, there are records, there are publications that say he was hospitalized four times, but we only have three here in the big book. So let's just stay with the three. And he acquired some ideas. What are those ideas? The ideas are Ebby bringing him his sobriety and looking at the, not looking at, but doing the tenets of the Oxford group movement and practicing, excuse me, not only their tenets, but also their absolutes. Absolute love, absolute honesty, absolute purity, and absolute unselfishness. He didn't find it necessary to drink throughout the rest of his life. But he knew that if he was going to keep this, he was going to have to give it away. And so while here, he not only acquired some ideas, which he put into practical application at once. So in other words, he started taking action. He started sponsoring. Now, I'm going to say something that many of you have heard me say 
once or twice. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. This is a program for people that get out there and work with other people. You won't sponsor, you won't recover. You don't want to sponsor, you ain't going to recover. Not going to happen. If you don't give this away, you don't get to keep any of it. You just don't. You've got to give it away. You're scared to sponsor? You better be scared not to. You're afraid you're going to say the wrong thing? If they want to recover, you can't say the wrong thing. If they don't want to recover, <clears throat> you can't say the right thing. Not happening. If I want to recover, Mickey Mouse could sponsor me and I'm going to recover. And if I don't want to recover, Bill Wilson could sponsor me and it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And so we have this complete deflation, a dependence upon God, a moral inventory, confession, restitution, and working with others. Those were the six steps of the Oxford Group Movement. They're on page 263 of the fourth edition. And there's also absolute honesty, absolute love, absolute purity, and absolute unselfishness. And so Bill Wilson got busy in the hospital talking to other drunks, but they were very reluctant to let him do that. They were very reluctant to do that, as we're going to find out. Why are they reluctant? They were doctors and counselors and psychiatrists and all kinds of medical credentials at the end of their name. How is this drunk, this skinny drunk, how is he getting through to these people and we can't seem to do that? How is that possible? Well, because in order for the message to be carried, it must have depth and weight. It must have depth and weight. Okay, let's continue. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here. And with some misgiving, we consented because they were afraid. What's a guy's wife going to say? We're paying all this money to put you in the hospital and the doctors are not helping you as much as this drunk guy is helping you. What's that all about? The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power, notice that power is capitalized, which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. So in other words, that these guys came in, Fitzmayo, Jimmy Burwell, Hank Parkhurst, Bill Wilson, to name a few of the early New Yorkers that got sober. They came in there with no profit motive, 
and they had a community spirit. They weren't there to see if they could sign the guy up for their 90-day sobriety plan, just sign here and pay, pay me in check. They weren't there to try to win a merit badge. They were there to help themselves. Bill Wilson said to Dr. Bob when he met him in Akron, I'm not here for you. I'm here for me. And that's an amazing thing when you think about it. Now, the bottom of page XXVII is the second time that Dr. Silkworth is going to tell us something that we need to hear. He says, of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. I'm at the top of XXVIII. And this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. What is he telling me here? He is telling me to put down the food. How do I put down the food? I don't know how to put it down. I'm, I've got this pen in my hand. I'm going to put the pen down. That's how you put down the food. Anything that's not on your food plan, anything that goes in your mouth that you know is a red light food does not go in the mouth. It does not go in the mouth. You don't have a food plan? Go to OA.org, download the pamphlet, A New Plan of Eating. There's food plans there. They all work. Get a nutritionist. Do what you need to do. Some nutritionists understand the disease. Some don't. How do you tell the difference? If they think you should be able to eat everything in moderation, they are not people that know this disease. So he is saying here, you got to put down the food or we cannot touch you with the steps. We can't touch you. There's nothing we can do. Go to an AA meeting and see if they would work the steps with you while you're drunk. Not going to happen. We need two days of abstinence, but we don't abandon people during those two days. We're there for them. We make ourselves available to them. We support them as best we can. Let's continue. XXVIII, we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics, what does chronic mean? It's just something that manifests all the time as a manifestation of an allergy. And we've talked about that already, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Now that means that when I eat Oreo cookies, there is something that comes over me physically that my friends do not experience. And that is when I eat an Oreo cookie, I want the 47th cookie more than I wanted the first cookie. I ate the first cookie and the allergy made me eat the second cookie. Now I've got two cookies inside me and I eat the third cookie. Now there's three. And the more of them I eat, the more I want. The more I want, the more I eat. The more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat. And it's just endless. But this never occurs in my friends. They can eat a half a sandwich. They can eat three french fries. 
seven French fries and they're done. They're done. I've seen them throwing out French fries. Who throws out a French fry? What asylum did these people escape from? Who in their right mind throws out a French fry? What the hell could be wrong with you? I've seen them do it. I've seen them turn down donuts and ice cream. Their response was, I'm too full. You're too full for ice cream? What loony bin did you escape from? But yet they can look the person in the eye and say, no, I'm good. I'm fine. I don't want any ice cream. And I'm looking at them like they're the creature from the Black Lagoon. Where in the world do these people come from? Not my, not from my neck of the woods. That I could tell you. Let's continue. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. When I am eating and that allergy is triggered, I cannot concentrate on homework. I cannot concentrate on school or work or responsibilities. I can only concentrate on where am I going to get more Tootsie Rolls? Where am I going to get more ice cream? Where am I going to get more money to buy these things? That is the only thought that is racing through my mind 24 hours every day. Where am I going to get more of these things so I can feel good right now? And after all, I'm hungry and I'm starving. And, you know, I, I walked an extra three feet yesterday because my I couldn't get the parking space right next to the door. So it must be okay if I eat, you know, five pizzas. So, you know. And he's telling me that these allergic types can never safely use alcohol. I can never safely use sugar flour. I can never safely use fried foods. I can never safely use certain crunchy things or sweet things. I just can't. I can't do it today and I will not be able to do it. But I'm just going to take everything one day at a time. Middle of XXVII. I, 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 I. Sounds like I'm stuttering. I, I, I. Sounds like I'm a Jewish guy in a movie. I, I, I. Okay. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. In other words, begging me, bribing me, blasting me, abusing me does not work. Frothy means lacking substance. Lacking substance. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. What does that mean? It means that in order for the message to be carried, it must be carried by someone who speaks and understands the language of the heart. Now, if you're here, I assume that you have this disease. 
Some of you may not. I don't know. I'm, I'm not here to assess you. And don't ask me how do you, here's how you, here's how you tell. The way that you tell is if you eat three Oreo cookies, do you want to eat more? And can you stop eating Oreo cookies now that you want to? That's how you tell. But I am not here to um, uh, assess you. I'm not here to, to, to diagnose you. This is a self-diagnosing disease. I'm going to assume that you have this disease. But if you have recovery to go with the disease, now you become a highly effective conduit of this information because now what happens is you speak and understand the language of the heart. One alcoholic to another alcoholic so that the second alcoholic's feelings of difference start to abate to the point where he will begin taking action after action after action that he does not yet believe in. And in taking this action, you have, a, you have triggered recovery in the second alcoholic. This is not about willingness or what you know or what you think or what you have figured out. This is about what you do. You do this work, you'll recover. You don't do the work, you won't recover. Want me to say that again? You do the work, you'll recover. You don't do the work, you won't recover. Bottom line. Bottom line. If any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We found, we feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. Dr. Silkworth is a great man. He could have said this spiritual stuff is a bunch of crap. And the reason he should have said it or could have said it is because he made his living at the town's hospital. He wasn't going to make any money about guys who were relieved of their alcoholism by fellow drunks. There's no monetizing that. There was nothing for him in that. But he was too great a man for that. And he is writing here that we feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. Wow, what a great guy. He was right. We restore more drunks than hospitals do. We restore more drunks than treatment centers do. We restore more drunks than all other methods combined. All other methods. And so we have a job to do. Every one of us, there's a hundred and there was 156 of you here at one time. 
We have a job to do, and that is to carry the message. You have a responsibility, not only to the people that brought it to you, but a responsibility to God and to yourself. Because nothing is going to ensure you immunity from drinking like intensive work with other alcoholics. You're not going to be able to recover by yourself not working with others. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. I'm sorry. You're afraid you're going to ruin him? You won't. You'll be fine. You better, you're afraid to sponsor? You better be afraid not to. You better be afraid not to because it is imperative that you sponsor other people. Okay. I don't really want to get into the next paragraph until two weeks from now. Don't, don't stop anything yet because I'm going to throw it back to you. But next week I will be in Los Angeles at the birthday. I hope many of you will be there too. And you'll have two speakers next week. Both are fantastic speakers. Fantastic. And uh, I, I know that you will enjoy them. So if you're not at the birthday, I hope you'll listen and support the speakers. I hope that you'll do that. But getting back to the context, the contents, excuse me, of what we just read, we have to sponsor. We have to get out there and do it. And there's a lot of work yet to be done. We have failed many minority communities. Here's something that's rather sad. And in Los Angeles, there's going to be a thousand of us. You'll be able to count the people of color on two hands. Two hands. You'll be able to count the people of color. Clearly, we can do better. There are going to be a thousand of us next year. And within the Native American community, here in Arizona at least, there are so many amputations and so much diabetes on the reservation that there are portable amputation kits out there on the reservation to aid the doctors to bring relief to the suffering. So that's the name of that tune. We have a job to do, and that job needs you. Don't leave that job to me and others. We need you. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices, which that means is substance has to be in the message. The message in order to be carried must have depth and weight. Okay, now, in summation, there's no earthly reason why you have this disease. There's no earthly reason or earthly condition that is going to alleviate you of this disease. You have it, and if you do, then only a spiritual experience will give you any type of relief or spiritual awakening. I've never had a spiritual experience. I've had a spiritual awakening, many of them, but I've never had a spiritual experience. Okay. The other thing I want to conclude with today is that you got to get busy. You just got to get busy. Okay.
We're going to cut this a little short because we're almost at the end, but not quite. Now, tomorrow I am doing special edition. And on special edition tomorrow, I'm going to be doing questions and answers there too. And so that's going to be uh, exciting for some of us. And this is like the fourth or fifth year I've started the year with the first special edition doing Q&A. So it's becoming quite the tradition in OA to have the Q&A right at the beginning of the year. So I hope that if some of you are going to call in, you'll give me some questions that are good and that we can teach from the question. Don't make things up, but, you know, use your brain. Okay, uh, let's turn this back over to whomever. I think it's Maria or it's Audrey or Tanya or Nancy or anybody. Uh, I don't know who. But let's turn it over to Tanya because she's the one raising her hand. And what we're going to do is we're going to do Q&A a little early today, and I'll still give it till 1230. The, we'll do 37 minutes of Q&A. But what I'm going to do is take a second just to write this down, that in two weeks, we're going to start on XXVIII, XXVIII, men and women. That's what I want to uh, write down. And that we're going to find out in two weeks that food was never the problem. That food was the solution to the problem. We're going to find out what the problem is, was. We're going to find out some things that are going to further smash some of the myths that we have been carrying around our whole life that food was the problem. Okay, Tanya, take it away, kiddo.